Indeed, as our voices have filled this sanctuary today, the Spirit of God has come into our midst and spoken to our hearts and to our minds. And now as His Word is open to us, may His Word through His Spirit indwell our minds, indwell our hearts, and dwell our lives. It was the early 1980s. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It quickly became a national bestseller, sold over 4 million copies, and remained on the New York Times bestseller list for many months. And today the book continues to stay in print. Why? I believe it's because Rabbi Kushner attempts to answer one of the most difficult questions that we face. Now the theological word is called theodicy, but what that means is that in his book he tries to address the problem of good and evil. In other words, how could a good and loving God allow a madman to blow up a building in Oklahoma City killing 168 innocent people, including children at a daycare. How could a good and loving God allow despots like Adolf Hitler to murder millions of innocent people? How could a good and loving God allow tornadoes to rip through a neighborhood school, killing helpless, innocent children? How could a good and loving God allow disease to slowly and painfully and mercifully, unmercifully take the lives of those we love, both young and old? And in the best that the Old Testament has to offer, Kushner concludes that life is just not fair, life is not just. And while God may not be able to prevent pain and suffering, He gives us the strength and the perseverance to overcome it through love and through forgiveness. You see, these are our weapons against the evil which exists in our world. Now certainly, Kushner's conclusions are, are helpful. But I believe they're ultimately incomplete. I believe that a much more complete answer is found as we continue to look more deeply into the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 and the understanding that in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant is revealed to us and light shines deeply into these questions of suffering and of evil. So if you would, and you haven't already, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And today we look over these three verses that are really the, the heart of this passage. And they begin in verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore. This word surely is a critical hinge point and turning point in this servant song. It's at this moment that the light comes on. 
It's at this moment that we realize this, this servant is not suffering on his own account, but rather that this servant is suffering the consequences of not his transgressions, but of our own. And in this word, surely, as we begin verse 4, we come to this understanding. We are confronted by the reality that this servant suffers on our account. He has taken on and He has taken away our suffering, our sin, our griefs, our sicknesses, and our sorrows. So what does it mean that this servant took on our suffering, took on our sicknesses, took on our griefs? I think it means a couple of things. First of all, that, that we know that we have a God who knows and understands the pain, the depths of our hurting and suffering because God has suffered. And it means that no matter how deep our suffering becomes, that we know that we do not suffer alone, but that we have a God that, that comes alongside of us and suffers and hurts with us. But not only did God take on our suffering, this servant take on our suffering through Christ Jesus, this servant took away our suffering. We do not suffer fully and eternally, even in the midst of the suffering that we experience today. For you see, in Christ Jesus, we do not suffer in despair, but we can suffer in hope. We do not suffer in fear, but we can suffer in the love of God. And we do not suffer in guilt and shame because He has taken that away. We can suffer the graces of mercy and of forgiveness. Leviticus chapter 16, we see this acted out among the, the, the priestly code and among Aaron and the priests. As each year, two goats would be selected. One would become that sacrifice to, to take on and to pay for that sin and would suffer. And the other became known as that scapegoat that would take away the sin of the people would, would be released and freed and would, would go out into the wilderness apart and take away that suffering and sorrow, take away that guilt and that shame and go off. And in many ways, this servant does the same thing as these two lambs by taking on our suffering and taking away our suffering all at the same time. So how was this servant afflicted and Smitten of God. Verse 5 offers a very detailed picture, a painful picture of how this servant suffered. You see, this servant was pierced and crushed and chastened and scourged. All four of these words graphically describe the punitive aspect of the suffering and the anguish of the servant. The words here translated pierced and crushed are two of the strongest words in the Hebrew language that describe a violent and painful death. Pierced, 
conveying the idea of being wounded to death, crushed, being beaten into pieces, chastened, a general word to, word to express the guilt and punishment of the servant. The word scourged, referring to the bruises, the welts, the raw open wounds that were inflicted from the strokes of a, a whip, a cat of nine tails. All four of these words, actions, fulfilled at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus where he was pierced through his wrists, his feet, and his side on the cross, where he was crushed by the beatings of soldiers and even of the religious leaders, where he was chastened and found guilty at an unjust trial, given an unjust verdict and sentence, scourged and striped by Roman soldiers, before his crucifixion. And Isaiah continues, says, Each of us, each of us like sheep, have gone astray. We have gone on our own way. Church, do, do you see that? We are compared to sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, you know how offensive this is. Philip Keller wrote this. He said, it's no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and humans is similar in many ways. Our stubbornness and stupidity and our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. For you see, sin has affected every aspect and area of our lives. This is a truth that we must come to grips with. We are not sinners because we sin every now and then. We sin because we are sinners. We are helpless. We have all gone our own way. And unless something drastic and miraculous happens to change our nature, we will continue along our hapless and hopeless path. We are sheep, and we desperately need a shepherd, a good shepherd, who will give us his life, not only to find us, but to die for us. To save us. Verse 6 continues that the Lord caused, the Lord allowed the iniquity of all of us, the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Again, this word iniquity, our, our punishment, our guilt, what we rightly deserved would, would fall on Him. This phrase, to fall on Him, is an interesting phrase. It has the sense of a violent attack with the intent to kill. The word is used in 1 Kings chapter 2 to describe what Solomon did when he ordered his men to execute, to fall upon the men who'd been disloyal and brought harm to his father, King David. But here, in this servant passage, we come to realize 
That instead of falling upon you and me, instead of this punishment, instead of this, what was right and just to come against us, that this punishment, this chastening, scourging, fell upon us, excuse me, fell upon the servant, the son, instead. And in doing so, it made right our sin and guilt before God. You see, the Lord fell upon Him, not us. Jesus, the servant, took our guilt. He bore our sin. He received our punishment. Instead of you and I being pierced and crushed and chastened and scourged, Jesus was. He was the substitute for what we rightly deserved. The Lamb of God sacrificed on our behalf. The scapegoat who carried or took away our sin. And church, if this does not make us recoil, if this does not disturb and shock us, then we have not fully grasped the profound meaning of the cross. As we look back at verse 5, Look at a couple of these ideas. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. By His scourging, we are he healed. This word, well-being, is the word shalom. Now think about that. Our shalom. Our peace with God. Our peace with each other was made possible because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken. Do you see that? Shalom in this case is the removal of enmity, of hostility between God and between sinners. And Jesus took that on. And instead of us being forsaken, the Son, the servant, was forsaken so that we might find shalom, peace, and wholeness with God. And as a result of that, peace and wholeness with one another. Through the scourging and chastening of our servant Jesus Christ, we are released from the bondage and slavery of sin and the separation that it causes between us and between God. We are healed eternally, but also can begin to experience expressions of healing and wholeness in this life. This morning I want to share a story with you, maybe a, a story that you're familiar with. I've, I've shared it uh, previously in some shorter segments, but I want to share a little more fully today because it's a powerful picture of a suffering servant. Father Maximilian Kolbe a 45-year-old Polish friar was serving in a monastery outside of, a, outside of Warsaw in a small village. In February of 1941, he was arrested by the Gestapo. And in a few months, he found himself at Auschwitz, a concentration camp that was infamous for the number of Jews that were put to death in that place. And there in Auschwitz, he was assigned to carry 
felled tree trunks from one place to the other. The guards that were over his work team laughed at him when they discovered that he was a priest and said, oh, Father, priests only have a life expectancy of about one month with us. And over the next days, the extreme conditions of life and of work at that camp became too much for Father Colby. And he collapsed under the load and weight of timbers one day. The officers and guards converged upon him and they began to kick and to beat him. They threw him onto a stack of wood and there gave him 50 lashes, threw him into a ditch, covered him with leaves, and left him for dead. It was only because of the grace and the courage of a few fellow prisoners that saved Colby as they they picked him up at their own risk and carried him to the camp hospital. We're there. The soldiers and guards that received him and doctors just simply began to laugh at him, saying, we don't even need to waste a bullet on this one. He won't live much longer. But miraculously, Colby recovered and was transferred to Barracks 14, where he continued to serve and to minister to his fellow prisoners. Prisoners so tortured by hunger that they could not even sleep. And on one July night, outside of their barracks, the dogs began to bark and the soldiers began to curse and to stir as they revved up their motorcycles and sped out of camp. And the next morning at roll call, the prisoners expected to see a a, a dead prisoner there in front of them as a result of a failed escaped attempt. But there was no one. There was no one as the the prisoners assembled for their morning assembly. No one was there. For you see, a prisoner had escaped from barracks 14. And when the other prisoners were released to go about their day's work and activities, the prisoners of barracks 14 were commanded to stand at attention for the rest of the day. In the July sun, as it beat down upon them, And as you can imagine, in their already dehydrated and and, and famished condition, sure enough, one by one, they began to to pass out. And as a prisoner would pass out, the guards would come and, and kick and beat them and drag them off. Those prisoners that began to sway in the heat of the day and the exhaustion of their bodies would would be pushed over and beaten. And kicked and dragged away as well. And by the end of the day, the end of that afternoon, there was still no escaped prisoner to be found. So the commandant came out and he announced to all the prisoners that ten will die in the place of this one prisoner who has escaped. And that they would be condemned to the starvation bunker. The starvation bunker was worse than death on the gallows. It was worse than a bullet at the wall of death. It was worse even than the gas chambers. Because you see, 
death in these manners came quickly. But death in the starvation bunker could take days, even weeks, with no food, no water, in the heat of that summer bunker. Even the guards, after a few days, were frightened to go in and see these prisoners. So the commandant began to call out random prisoners by their numbers. You see, in those prison camps, you, you weren't called by your name. You were called by a number because you were, were certainly not human. And when number one, six, six, Seven, zero was called out. The prisoner cried out, My poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? And as the ten condemned prisoners were being assembled, another commotion took place amongst the ranks. You see, prisoner number 5659 had broken out of line and had asked to address the commandant. Surely he would be shot dead on the spot. But instead, the commandant chose to, to humor this prisoner. He said, what do you want? And prisoner 5659 said, I want to die in one of these men's places. Why, snapped the commandant, who are you? I'm a priest. And why do you want to die instead of this man? He said, because I'm an old man. I'm good for nothing. I can't work like this younger man can. He will serve you much better than, than I can. Well then, in whose place do you want to die? For number one, six, six, seven, zero. And in an act of grace, the commandant allowed this. And as Father Colby and this other prisoner passed ways, one being freed, one going to his death, the prisoner who had been Graced, his face reflected the, the shock and the relief and the unbelief and the confusion of this moment. Why would anyone take my place and die for me? The prisoners were herded into the starvation bunker, stripped, and as the hours and as the days passed, the camp, the guards, noticed something different. You see, instead of the howling and fighting and cries of desperation of, of men going out of their minds, something different began to happen. You see, they began to hear faint, faint sounds of singing in the bunker. You see, Father Colby, who willingly took on this man's suffering, who willingly took on this man's death, was leading the other prisoners through the valley of the shadow of death. 
And each time a guard would enter the bunker just to check on the prisoners and and to see who was alive and who was no longer alive, they would find Father Colby standing or kneeling in the center of the bunker with his eyes on the door to greet, to acknowledge the guards as they would open the door. Perhaps... Perhaps this is the reason why Father Colby was the last to die. After almost two weeks in the starvation bunker, the impatient guards, for you see they needed that bunker for another group of prisoners, the impatient guards entered into the bunker to check to see who was still alive. And they saw Father Colby leaning against one of the corners, still alive, with a slight smile on his face, with his vision fixed at something far away. And as the guards approach, as they reach down their hands to take him by the arm to offer that lethal injection, Father Colby lifted up his arm to receive that. Likewise, Jesus took on our sin and He took our place on the cross. And there on the cross, He prayed for our forgiveness. And there on the cross, He paid it all. And I can't help but believe that Jesus had a a slight smile on His face when there in moments before His death, He turned and He looked at that, that thief. And said, today, you will be with me in paradise. And as he was taking his last breath, I wonder, even though his arms were were nailed and and tied to that crossbeam, I wonder if he saw himself reaching his hands up to his Father who was extending his hands downward, as Jesus said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. You see, on the cross, Jesus was the suffering servant. And in a few days, He would become the risen Lord. Shalom made possible for you and for me. Healing made possible because of all that fell on Him. You see, the question of how a good and loving God how a good and loving God could allow suffering and evil to thrive continues to create doubt and unbelief among many. But this morning, I hope that in this story of the suffering servant that we have found comfort, that we have found possibilities. For you see, in Jesus of Nazareth, we learn that God is not a distant God He's not distant from our suffering. Rather, God takes on our suffering. He is with us in our suffering, which means we do not suffer alone. He knows what it's like to be pierced and crushed and condemned and scourged. He knows our pain and our suffering. For you see, He bore the weight of sin and evil and guilt and shame and humiliation. 
And in the midst of all of that, God, the suffering servant, brings healing and shalom. And in addition, he, he takes away, he carries away from us our guilt and our eternal punishment. You see, the servant received our ultimate condemnation, not us, pierced, crushed, condemned, scourged for our eternal judgment. And we discover that as a result of that, that our suffering even here in this place is lessened. Instead of fear, we suffer with the love of God. Instead of despair, we suffer with the hope of God. But why does God suffer for us? Why does God suffer for you? Why does God suffer for me? And the only answer that we could possibly begin to understand is that God loves us. John 3.16 says that God loved the world so much He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. In John 15.13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You see, we are the friends of God. And we know this because he took away our sin and he carried away our eternal suffering. Jesus obediently and willingly and lovingly died for us. Because of this, surely we can walk each day Enduring the suffering that we do experience. The Apostle Paul offers this perspective in Romans 8 when he says, The sufferings of this present day are nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits. Following Christ is not a guarantee that you'll, you'll never suffer in this life, but following Christ gives us perspective that we can bear this suffering for the glory, the eternity that awaits. Paul calls these sufferings today and groanings today like childbirth. I've not experienced that. I've witnessed it. It's intense. But Paul says these sufferings and groanings are like childbirth in the anticipation that something new is about to be born and so today, God hears our groanings. He sees our sufferings. And He works to bring all of these things together for good if we will love and trust in Him. Because Jesus suffered, we can experience healing. Because Jesus suffered, we can find shalom with God and others. Because He forgave, we can forgive. Because Jesus loved us, we can love God and we can love one another. Because Jesus took on our suffering and took away our pain i wonder i wonder if we can take on or take away the suffering of another like father colby you see this is the example of the servant the messiah surely he bore our griefs, our sicknesses, 
and our sorrows. Let's pray.